The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission. To learn more about the work of IJM, listen to the Esther series on this podcast. It's just a few shows back. Start with episode one and get a really good sense of what IJM is doing and how you can help. Then go to IJM.org forward slash rescue dash children. Thank you. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffoltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we have an important conversation with Shannon Service. Shannon is an independent reporter and filmmaker whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the BBC, The Guardian of London, and NPR. She primarily focuses on crimes at sea, but her reporting has covered everything from the ravages of war to the intimacies of heartbreak. But in 2012, she was part of a team that broke the story of slavery on Thai fishing boats for Morning Edition on NPR. It was heartbreaking and incredible reporting, which kind of brings us to to her current work and the focus of our conversation today because she is the director and producer of an incredible documentary called Ghost Fleet. Ghost Fleet follows a small group of Thai activists who really risk their lives to find justice and freedom for enslaved fishermen. And they talk about stories of survival and this huge criminal conspiracy that is at the heart of the global seafood industry. As part of IJM, which, as you know, presents the new activists, we are working a lot in this Thai fishing industry to help bring rescue and freedom to these people that are enslaved on boats. And so I wanted to talk more to Shannon to understand the depth of what is happening on these waters and also to just see what can be done to bring these men home. Here is Shannon Service. So, Shannon, for those that have not seen Ghost Fleet yet, um, can you give us sort of, I know you've done this a million times, but can you give us sort of an overview of it? Sure. Um, Ghost Fleet is a feature documentary that follows a really incredible woman uh, named Patima. And she goes to remote islands in Indonesia where men have been jumping ship off of fishing boats. And they've been jumping ship because they were enslaved onto the fishing boats um, to put fish on our plates uh, in the West. And when they see land after a long period of time, um, they'll often risk their lives and jump, even if they've never swum before, just to escape the conditions on board. Uh, but then they'll be trapped. And she goes out um, with her right-hand guy, Tunlin, who himself was enslaved for over a decade. And the two of them lead this expedition to go find men and bring them home to their families. You do follow this main character of Patama, and she is stoic and so heroic at the same time. She uh, is just an unbelievable person. Can you tell me what it was like and what you learned from her? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I've learned so much from her. She is apparently fearless. You know, she really, she cares a lot about her team and she doesn't want um, her team to see her afraid, but she certainly experiences fear. Um, it's it's a dangerous world, you know. The the captains of these boats um, are pretty ruthless, and they uh, enslave men, obviously, and they steal fish, um, and they live in a world where 
if somebody disobeys them, often they'll just kill them, um, throw them overboard. Or mm. um, so to go into that world and to uh, and, and to rescue men and to kick up an international fuss is really brave. Um, and she does it with such humor and grace and openness. Um, she loves these men. I mean, the way that it all started is she and her husband, uh, Sumpong, were starting out as uh, migrant rights organizers in Bangkok. They're both Thai. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to make life a little bit better for all the migrant workers who were coming from uh, Myanmar, also known as Burma, uh, Cambodia, Laos, um, and who were often sort of mistreated, not, not paid as well. And all of a sudden these men start showing up on her doorstep with these horror stories of being enslaved and at sea and jumping ship and finally making their way back. Um, and she really does it out of love. These guys showed up on her doorstep. Uh, they ended up sort of living with her and Sompong um, and creating this kind of almost family. Um, and when she kept hearing that there were other men like those guys out there, she just couldn't bear it, you know, because she knows how great these guys are and how horrible this is. Um, yeah. And so she has this very, very deep motivation, but it's not a motivation of ego. It's not like, I'm a hero and I'm going to go out and save people. Um, you know, so it's a really different motivation. It's rooted in family. It's rooted in love. It's rooted in obviously a deep commitment to justice, but also in just doing the right thing because nobody else was doing it. She spent a long time going to bigger organizations with more capacity and saying, Hey guys, you know, there's these men out on the islands, go, go get them. But I think it seemed a little outlandish, <laughs> right. you know, like, yeah, I'm not sure that she was fully, fully believed because it's kind of a crazy story. Um, right. And so eventually she just started going, you know, and she's, and I think she rescued something like uh, 200 men on the first, on the first journey. And she just keeps going back and going back and going back. Um, but to have this remarkable woman who is saving men just mm -hmm. on, on that level of storytelling is really key to have a survivor like Tun Lin, who's going back to the area where he was enslaved and traumatized and finding his redemption, his healing in finding other men like him and bringing them home. You know, these are stories that we don't really see very often. Um, although, to be honest, and, you know, I, I think in the work that you guys do, you know this, it's often women and people most directly impacted who are doing the work. Yes. Uh, we just don't see that in a lot of our myth-making. I want to ask you some very basic questions pertaining to what you just said, um, because for people that have that are just interacting with this for the first time, um, th there may be just uh, kind of thoughts about, you know, how, why is there an illegal fishing in industry? Why are these illegal boat owners, why aren't they just working legally? Are they just terrible people? Or is there some <laughs> other reason right behind why they would choose to enslave people um, to support their industry? It's a complicated industry, like, like a lot of industries. And there's a lot of different reasons that sort of factor into how um, slavery has arisen inside fishing. Um, part of it is that there's very, very, very little oversight and regulation and enforcement on the water. Uh, it's because it's really hard. Uh, it's very, you know, once a boat leaves shore and is out at sea, it's extremely difficult to enforce um, labor laws or um, safety, you know, violations. Um, it's even hard to prevent boats from stealing the fish of other countries. Uh, it requires not just the ability to see the boats and monitor the boats, but mo most importantly, there's a huge gap in terms of how expensive it is for uh, countries like Indonesia that have 
14,000 islands to, you know, send boats out, um, and, and bust guys who are doing things wrong. And so there's a, there's sort of a sense of lawlessness in the ocean in general, to be perfectly honest. I'm an ocean's journalist. So Thailand's not alone in that. Um, it's kind of the system itself is, uh, rife with, uh, loopholes and lawlessness and an inability to really enforce what we think of as just basic, uh, human rights and basic labor laws, basic environmental standards, uh, on land become a lot harder at sea. And it's usually, you know, countries, a lot of the countries that, um, are rich in fish resources, uh, are also countries that don't necessarily have the money to, uh, enforce their fishery. So the biggest, the biggest piece is that it's kind of a, a, it's a pretty lawless system. And, uh, and in, you know, Thailand with, with the amount of slavery, which is, has been, um, uh, pretty shocking, um, you know, tens, certainly hundreds of thousands more likely of men have gone through this, uh, in the last couple of decades. So it's, it's, it's part of the practice of fishing in Thailand. Um, but that's, you know, inside this, this context of like pretty, pretty rampant lawlessness. And then the other thing too, is that there's within the supply chain itself, uh, it's a, it's a very hard supply chain to track. Um, boats are out at sea. Often there's something called a mothership that'll bring the slaves and, um, some supplies and ice out to the boats, collect all the fish from a number of boats. Mm. So if you have a boat and you're doing everything perfectly, you have great labor standards, you're paying all of your guys, um, you're not stealing fish. And I have the worst possible boat, you know, everybody's enslaved, I'm stealing fish left, right, and center. When the mothership comes and takes the fish off of your boat and the fish off of my boat, it basically gets laundered. It all gets mixed together. And it's impossible for officials to know, you know, what the conditions were on either boat because the mothership comes to shore and it's all just full of fish from a number of different boats. So there's sort of, you know, inherent in the system is kind of this, um, this laundering, you know, that's illegal, that's actually legal. Uh, So there's a whole number of reasons. And then the other thing too, is that often the owners of the companies um, will just say to their captains, you know, we need X amount of fish, go out and get it. And they don't necessarily care that the fish around Thailand, uh, the fishery has been really depleted due to overfishing for a really long time. So now the boats have to go further and further away from shore. Um, fishermen don't want to go out that far and uh, under crazy conditions and not see their families. So as Thailand has become more prosperous, people, men have been leaving the sector for other sectors so they can stay home. Um, and so there's a huge gap in terms of how many fishermen there actually are in the Thai fishing fleet. And so the owner says to the captain, you know, just get it done. And then the captain is often the one who will say, well, you know, I'll fill half the boat with legal fishermen, but then I can't get the rest of the crew. So I'll buy them, um, off of this guy who's supplying crew. Uh, and so the captain is usually under a lot of pressure to feed his family and, you know, do what he needs to do to make a living. And the owner is often sheltered. So the owner can kind of say, Hey, I didn't think he was going to buy slaves, but they sort of put the captains in these, um, tough positions um, because, you know, there's, there's no real, there are real ways to do this, but it's much more structural. It's like, actually, we need to pay everybody better. We have to get them home more often. We have to, you know, um, but in the current system, which is sort of a a free for all, um, if you're paying everybody 
properly and you're getting them home, uh, it becomes very hard to make a profit because the price of fish is still too low for that. Mm. Uh, so all of that comes together. It's like, you know, you can look at it from sort of a capitalist point of view. You can look at it from a environmental point of view. There's a, a number of reasons why it's happening. Yeah. It, it is almost too efficient and too perfect of a failure of an entire system. I mean, like no, exactly. no one of the, pro the problem is rampant. So then how do, how do the men who are being uh, bought and basically are becoming slaves? And I say men be because that's, it's, yeah. is it just men? Just okay. men and boys. Okay. Yeah. Um, how are they, are they being tricked? Do they know they're being going into slavery? Like what, because these are people that are coming from families and homes, like under what circumstances are they being lured into, uh, into this? So there's a few different paths on board. Uh, and obviously every, every guy has a very unique, right. you know, in terms of the details path. Um, but largely, uh, more often than not the, guy who becomes enslaved uh, is coming from a different country. So often they'll come from Myanmar or from Cambodia, and they'll be told often by a network, a very informal sort of network of, uh, of traffickers, brokers, people who, you know, often it, at the very local level, there'll be somebody in the village who says, hey, I can connect you with somebody who can get you uh, work. And in countries where, like Cambodia and, and Myanmar, also known as Burma, um, you know, those the work is really hard to come by. So uh, the prospect of being able to go to Thailand, where uh, the, the currency is stronger, they'd be able to work um, uh, in good conditions, at least theoretically, um, and come back with money in their pocket uh, is really attractive. And so the same broker in, 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 in one village will tell five men, you know, hey, I'll connect you with another broker. Um, and four of those guys will come back and have had a perfectly fine time. You know, they managed to migrate across the border. They found some decent work situation. They came back when they wanted to. But then the fifth guy will fall into the hands of a different type of broker or trafficker and end up on board a boat. So because it's so informal, it's kind of a giant crapshoot. And it's just really hard to know because um, the broker only knows you know one or two other brokers. And then those two brokers know a few more. And pretty soon it's a spider web. And it kind of depends on where you end up. Um, so that's a really, really common way. Uh, pretty soon the guy's across the border. Um, he doesn't speak the language. He doesn't have a currency. Um, often he'll be under armed guard, but he almost doesn't even need to be under armed guard. If you don't have any money, you don't have any documents and you don't speak the language, you're pretty trapped and he'll be locked in a warehouse, um, in a port and sold on board the boat. So it's a very vulnerable situation and it turns immediately. As soon as you cross the border, the whole thing changes. Uh, so that's the most common way. And the other, um, way, which is a lot less common is that, um, a guy, usually a Thai guy, will walk into, usually it's a brothel, sometimes it's a bar, yeah. and be roofied and wake up on board a boat. No way. Yeah. Oh, that is vicious. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, that is, that's hard to hear. I mean, both scenarios are just, uh, just extremely hard to hear. And I think Ghost Fleet um, does such a, I mean, good job of humanizing the, these men. Because so often, you know, 
we just look at the numbers, the amount of fish, the number of boats, the number of people, but to actually know the stories of these men and to feel the emotion, um, it was fairly overwhelming. I, there was one section, um, and please correct my mispronunciation of his name, but was it Mayung, M-A-U-N-G, I think it was? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he was it, was, it was a quick moment and he said, sorry, I can't speak Burmese anymore. And this was the language of his homeland. And that yeah. was, that was a like, pause the film for a second and just have a yeah. moment because there's a real visceral sense of what is lost. Like he, he could never actually truly go home. He didn't even, he wasn't even able to communicate with his people. And that moment just sucks the wind out. It's crushing. And and so for you being in those stories and being around that, I'm curious what, what the loss is. Like, can you take us deeper into the cost of these people who have been enslaved um, and, and what you've seen and what you've felt and kind of the real human, the human toll that it takes on these men? Yeah. Another good question. Um, it's, there's, there's the outer layer, you know, that's very obvious to see. Um, they've been ripped away from their families. Often their families think they're dead. Um, I've been to villages in Cambodia that are virtually empty of men and boys. It doesn't mean that all of them are on the boats, but if you think that a percentage of them are on the boats, uh, they're not coming back anytime soon. And when they do, they don't have money in their pockets. So the outer layer of, you know, obviously the brutality, the kidnapping, the murder, the psychological impact of having 10 men working and living um, inside the space of an 18-wheeler uh, against their will. Uh, it requires a lot of violence to keep that situation in place. Um, and to do that year upon year, you know, day upon day, month upon month, year upon year, looking out and seeing nothing but horizon, just, just ocean. Um, <clears throat> it's extremely violent situation. Uh, but what's really remarkable is, uh, is what you're pointing to, which is the level of trauma, you know, the yeah. invisible pain, um, losing uh, your language, your mother tongue. And part of that, because uh, he's a young guy, you know, part of it's, it's not necessarily I've been away for 50 years. Um, it's almost like, and Patima talks about this a lot, um, just, you know, how, how hard it is to overstate or even to describe the level of trauma that you get to where you just shut down a whole part of yourself. It's like your past becomes too painful to think about. Um, your family, your home, uh, it feels impossible. Like you're never going to go back there. And so you just shut it down and shut it off and survive, um, for so long that it becomes really, really hard to go back. Even when you have the opportunity to go back, it becomes really challenging. And the other thing that happens too psychologically, um, is that, uh, well, first of all, you know, many men go mad, um, oh. And that's, you know, again, it's sort of just um, under that level of violence and trauma, um, it's it kind of a way of escaping reality. And not everybody can handle that, you know, pressure cooker. Um, and then the other thing that happens is that uh, men will shut down at an even deeper level and they'll kind of cut themselves off from the idea of home or uh, try not to sleep because they might have dreams of home and it's too painful to wake back up. Um, and they'll also start to um, uh, kind of not, not lose, but suppress the ability to think for themselves 
because it's it's too it's almost too painful if the captain is telling you everything to do and you're rebelling against it or trying to kind of keep a sense of self or um or a sense of of thinking beyond what the captain tells you you get beat every time you do something different um or you know you're just falling into this this pattern of just blind obeyance um becomes a survival strategy right but then when you go home um without money and your family is still sort of in this, in, in this desperately poor situation, um, it becomes very hard to function in any work because you've kind of gotten to a place where you just accept orders and that's it. Um, so what Platinum is doing now, she's putting the, fi- the finishing touches on a fish, a fisherman center. Um, so it's been built, the men themselves built it. Uh, they're installing the solar, they're growing their own food and it's a place for, rehabilitation um nothing like it exists in the world uh for men who've been enslaved at sea and it's a place for the men to come together before they go home to learn new skills and um and become healthier you know because they're the only ones who really understand each other's experience so it's a place for them to sort of validate what actually happened to them um and learn skills and get kind of back on their feet before they go home. Um, And it's a critical, critical piece that's been missing. Right. Because without that, without that final piece, I mean, they're still, they they must still be um, able to be victimized. Like if they just somehow miraculously get off the boat and go back home, they're still under the same circumstances that led them to that in the first place, which is just crippling poverty, right? I mean, and so unless unless they exactly, yeah. and it's so bad that a lot of the guys go back on the boats, you know, because yeah. they they do know how to fish, <laughs> and so so you know they'll they'll, tell, they'll take their chances again because uh, because it, because this is about their family ultimately, and um, they'll take their chances and hope that they you know that they'll get paid this time. Right. Um, so without some other way back, uh, that happens way too often. Yeah, that was one of the overwhelming pieces of a story we interacted with IJM was, you know, he comes off this boat and goes home, but then his family is still basically starving. And so at that point, right. what, what choice do you have? You, right. and then you right. make a choice to go back to this and it, it's, it's not really a choice. A choice is what, you know, free people get. Yeah. There's so much to talk about. And I feel like we could do this for hours just because the, the mm. film and the issue is so, um, it's just so dense, but on top of the factors that we talked about that bring people into slavery and that cause this industry to be just so full of illegal labor, there is also the ecological cost of this. Mm-hmm. And and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what that cost is um, as a result of this illegal fishing. Absolutely. Um, it's massive. Yeah. This issue is, you could say, driven by, created by um, the ecological issues. So essentially Thailand has one of the biggest fishing fleets in the world. It's a set, it's one of the top consistently year over year, one of the top suppliers of fish to the U S one of the top suppliers of fish to the EU. So it's a massive, massive fleet. And it's so big that it essentially cleared out the Gulf of Thailand. Um, that is crazy. It's no longer a, a fishing ground that can sustain, um, oh. a real industry. And so, uh, the boats started going out further and further and now go as far away as Africa. Um, Tunlin is an example, uh, who's Patama's right-hand guy on a journey when he was taken 
at 14, um, he was taken directly to Somalia. And so now you have a Thai boat that has kidnapped a Burmese kid and he's forced to fish off the coast of Somalia because the Somali government was essentially imploding. And boats from all over the world were coming to Somalia because they knew that they could steal their fish with impunity and nobody, there's no Navy. There's nobody to stop them. So all of these boats came and started stealing Somali fish, which creates a huge problem for Somalis for whom fish is a primary protein source. It's a major, major important um, piece of the diet. And when you have all of these big boats and fleets from around the world stealing their fish, it's, it takes an already really terrible situation and makes it a lot worse. So, you know, the, essentially the lawlessness of these boats, especially boats um, that have slaves on board, if you're not paying your men, you can go as far as you want and steal fish from anybody else you want. Uh, and it triggers kind of a Johnny Appleseed of destruction um, where you've already cleared out the Gulf of Thailand and now you're going around wrecking other countries' fisheries, which is sparking a whole other um, round of food insecurity, political instability, and then, you know, ecological collapse. So it's a, ma- it's a major, major problem. Man. And it's, you know, it all comes down to just not having a handle globally on this industry. In, in our last few moments, um, I just want to pivot uh, a little bit and ask a bit about you, if you don't mind. I know that so much of it is about the work and and I want to keep it there, but I'm also curious, like, how do you specifically come to be engaged in issues of crime at sea? I spent my 20s as an activist, actually. Hmm. Um, that was my job. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, uh, I worked with a, a group called the Ruckus Society and, um, and I would... Uh, repel off of buildings and bridges and um, teach people how to, to, to drop banners for Greenpeace or for Students for Free Tibet, um, for various Whoa. indigenous rights organizations, uh, and train activists in nonviolent direct action how to you know, shut down cities, um, but to do it in a, in a nonviolent way. Um, and you know, a, lot, a lot of it was because even back then, this is in the 90s, uh, and early 2000s, it was pretty clear to me personally that an, an economic model that is driven purely by profit and doesn't have ecological and human rights and labor uh, guardrails sort of built into it in a, in a really deep way, um, that that model on a finite planet um, with human people is it can be disastrous, you know, and we sort of needed to turn the ship around. Um I became frustrated because I, I wasn't really seeing the, the level of reporting that I wanted to out of those actions. Mm-hmm. So I became a reporter um, and really separated myself um, from the direct action community and started doing investigative reporting, investigative environmental reporting, uh, war reporting, human rights reporting. And I went to Berkeley, got a master's. And when I came out, I was talking to my friend Becky, who uh, had spent quite a bit of time in, in Myanmar and Yangon. Uh, as a, as a reporter, she's British, uh, but she had worked there for many years and she and I just graduated from Berkeley from the journalism school and we wanted to do something together. And she said, well, you know, when I was in Yangon, I was hearing about these men and boys that would disappear and not come back. And, uh, there, you know, there wasn't really good freedom of the press. Um, but the rumors were that it had to do with the Thai fishing fleet. So, 
this, this story sort of brought everything together for me in terms of my deep love of the ocean, human rights, uh, investigative reporting. And we contacted Phil Robertson, who at the time was with the International Organization on Migration. Right. And he had written a report. Uh, so we found out that it was happening. The fish is coming to the U.S., contacted NPR. And we spent six months doing an investigative, an investigative report for NPR that aired on Morning Edition. Uh, they gave us 15 minutes, which is pretty remarkable. That's incredible. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so we broke the story about slavery at sea on NPR in 2012. Uh, and along the way, I met Fatima, I met all of these men and, you know, realized that reporting is really important. Um, it's critical. But for the reasons that you've talked about a couple of times, it doesn't really get into the true heart of the story. You know, you hear about an issue, it's terrible. There's lots of terrible issues in the world. And you hear about, you know, the, the men are often sort of reduced to a figure like this many men are estimated uh, but you don't meet them and, right. you, and you're not moved by them and you don't actually enter into their real actual story. And so that was the, the goal of the film. Um, so from 2012 until now, I've really been working on Ghost Fleet and getting it out into the world. We took, in addition to the film festivals, uh, Patima went and spoke uh, at World Oceans Week at Congress. Oh, wow. Uh, Tun went and spoke on World Oceans Day at the UN. And that talk, his talk has been seen uh, close to a million times, mostly in Southeast Asia. So the, wow. you know, the level of, of what a film that really moves people's hearts as opposed to, it's, it's extremely important. I never want to undercut reporting. It's, it's extremely important to break the story, to put it on the map, to put it in front of, you know, the, the, there's a lot that happens there. Um, but it's a completely different tool and a totally different uh, in the hands of human rights activists and in the hands of lawmakers. Um, uh, it's a completely different thing to really introduce human to human, you know, the, the person who is picking up the fish in the Western supermarket and um, on the other side of that package, the human beings who are really remarkable, brave, beautiful men and boys who have been almost destroyed, but are actually you know, a lot of them uh, are in this really incredible redemptive journey of helping each other and building something new. Somebody's listening to this podcast running on a treadmill and their bell is rung <laughs> and right. But this problem seems so huge and it's so far away. Mm -hmm. And even if we got to Thailand, we couldn't get to the boats. And I guess the question mm -hmm. is, how does a normal person engage in making any sort of difference in the issue? that Ghost Fleet seeks to, to tell the story of? There's a, there's a couple different ways. The very first is to start asking where your fish comes from. I know that seems like a simple thing, but often I, I live in San Francisco Bay Area and I know everything about right. my meat. You know, if, if there's a steak, like I know that the cow was named Jack and he got massages every day and was grass fed <laughs> and never touched a chemical That's and like, you know, everything is like, you know, seven miles away. Um, and I know that my apple was from New Zealand and is biodynamic, and, but I know almost nothing about my fish. Um, I'm lucky if I even know where it was processed. So we have a sort of just very fundamental ask that we need to start sending a signal to the market that people, fish, people who eat fish really actually care about where the fish came from, how it was caught, who caught it. Just asking those questions actually goes a really long way. Also, for those who are inspired, go to ghostfleet.com. We do have an email list. It's very low traffic, but as we're working with 
the UN, Congress, companies um, across the world, as Patima has been speaking at all of these seafood conferences. And as steps come together to try to correct this industry, we'll be asking uh, our viewers to, to take simple actions um, at those times. So that's key. And the final thing is to donate to Patima's organization. Mm -hmm. They do phenomenal work. Um, it's life-changing, groundbreaking work. And you can donate to LPN through our website, ghostly.com as well. Well, first, my sincere thanks to Shannon for not only spending time with us today, but also for her and the entire crew that put together Ghost Fleet. Ghost Fleet is an important documentary and it is available now on Apple TV and Prime Video. So you can go to ghostfleet.com and you can not only sign up for film and campaign news, like she said, but you can also watch the film. And I would encourage you to. I think it's really the next step from this interview is to understand and really see and feel through their tremendous filmmaking, not only the bigness of the scope of the problem, but also the very individual toll that it takes on these men who are fishing and the families that are at home. Thank you to Shannon for all of your hard work. In addition, IJM, as I said earlier, is working in this space and working very hard to bring rescue and freedom to these men and to reunite these families. For more information on what IJM is doing, please go to IJM.org. The link, of course, is in your show notes as well. A quick reminder that we are on social media, of course, who isn't these days, but we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of that is New Activist Is, and a big thank you to Propaganda, who scored today's episode. All of his tour dates, merch, music, etc. can be found at prophiphop.com. If you have a spare moment and you haven't done it yet, if you would go over to The New Activist on iTunes and give us five stars and review the show, we'd love to hear in those reviews who you think should be on the show, what has particularly resonated with you. We read every single one of those reviews and they mean a great deal and it also helps other people find the show. So please go to iTunes and rate and review the show. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Shannon Service and my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. Mm -hmm.